It's good to be with you. Amen. Thanks for inviting me to come. I'm happy to be here. I've had a very particular seeking of the Lord and waiting on the Lord and wondering before the Lord what to minister on. And the Lord seemed to be taking his time as far as giving me any clear leading. But earlier this week, I believe I uh, received some leading from the Lord. And then by fellowshipping, actually with a, a young serving one, the Spirit really confirmed that we should spend all of our sessions on a half of a chapter in the Gospel of Matthew. Amen. So I'd like to read with you, actually I'll read to you, Matthew 16. Uh, you just follow along and we will consider this portion from Matthew, and in particular four subjects, which will I, I will identify. And we will consider these subjects in the context of the entire Gospel of Matthew and even of the whole New Testament, beginning at verse 13. Uh, I'll read and you just follow along quietly. Now when Jesus... Notice the name Jesus. Now when Jesus came into the parts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, Who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah. And still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But you, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So this is the first subject, Christ, Christ. You are the Christ. And Jesus answered him and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in the heavens. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. This is the second subject. Church, my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of the heavens. This is the third subject, kingdom. I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of the heavens, and whatever you bind on the earth shall have been bound in the heavens, and whatever you loose on the earth 
shall have been loosed in the heavens. Then he charged the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. From that time onward, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. He must be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God, be merciful to you, Lord. This shall by no means happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The fourth word is cross. Christ, the church, the cross, and the kingdom. That's our subject. Christ, tonight we'll share on Christ. We realize a number will be coming. They may come late. Many may miss the meeting, but still I want to release this initial word and we can have a thorough review in the morning to bring them into the burden. But continuing the reading, for whoever wants to save his soul life shall lose it. But whoever loses his soul life for my sake shall find it. For what shall a man be profited if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul life? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul life? For the Son of Man is to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will repay each man according to his doings. Truly I say to you, there are some of those standing here who shall by no means taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and brought them up to a high mountain privately. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as the light. And then there's another portion. I think I can uh, find it. Well, I think I'll save that for tomorrow morning. We'll just, we'll just keep this here. The Lord Jesus took his disciples away from Jerusalem and away from Nazareth to a very particular region, Caesarea Philippi. I got to be there in March 1999. The Mount of Transfiguration is close by, and the road leading to Damascus, where Saul of Tarsus was caught by the Lord, is in that general area. Although we are dealing with spiritual matters 
and we're exercising our spirit, the Lord himself would make geographical shifts for a spiritual purpose. He wanted not to be in Jerusalem because that was the center of religion. And he wanted not to be in Nazareth of Galilee because that was the realm of those who knew him in a natural way. Instead, he went to a region that has a very clear, pure, fresh, new, invigorating atmosphere, Caesarea Philippi, to the north. It may strike us as strange, but he did this because he wanted something to be revealed to his disciples that was utterly crucial for his ministry and for their eventual service to him. So he brought him to this region and then he asked them a question. Who are the people saying that I am? I know that they have concepts about me. I know they're wondering about me. Who do they say that I am? Now for a moment here, I want to impress you with who is asking this question. I called attention to the fact that the name Jesus is used. And we'll be reminded that in the very first chapter of Matthew, he was given that name, Jesus. Certain portions in the Gospel of Matthew are the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. In the Wednesday night ministry meeting, we are in the midst of a five-week series of messages on Isaiah 53. And allow me to say, last week Wednesday and this week Wednesday, we had two rather potent messages on Jesus, according to Isaiah 53. I would like you to be impressed and to be open and willing to be impressed with the kind of human being God became when he became a man. He not only became a man in a generic way, God became a man. He became a human being. And we may have a kind of vague, general concept of he became a man. I have the idea God became a man. He put on human nature. He had a human life. But Isaiah 53 is a unique, a unique chapter in describing him as a singularly unattractive person physically. He had no attractive appearance. He was a root out of dry ground, meaning he grew up in poverty. He was even described as being a tender plant. Are real men tender plants? 
Nathan, would you like to be described as a tender plant? Jason, I don't think so. He was a man of sorrows. He had no majesty. And he was actually so disfigured that people could hardly bear to look at him. He was despised. He was rejected. In Matthew chapter 13, he was rejected in his own home. They would not believe in him. He was forced to separate himself from his family, from his upbringing. The Jesus who is in Matthew 16, and I want to say this respectfully, is a very unattractive Jewish poor carpenter from Nazareth of Galilee. When God became a man, he didn't have a physique like the governor of California, meaning the new one if he's been installed. I don't know if he has or not. He didn't become like Mr. Olympia. He wasn't gorgeous. He wasn't attractive. God deliberately entered the human race by being born in a manger in Bethlehem and taking on a human form that was not at all attractive. Then at the age of 30, this Nazarene, this Galilean, this carpenter, this unattractive person who was despised his whole life, never included in anything, who would want anything to do with him. You felt uncomfortable looking at him. If he would come into the room, we would all be startled, but then we couldn't bear to see him. That's what it says. We have been lied to by religion with the pictures of a Viking in a blue bathrobe with little lambs flocking about. Or the, the, the blonde dude with hair length, golden hair, and, and this nice complexion and sharp profile glowing there. When God became a man, He became an unattractive human being. But He came out to minister and we will see he would go to certain other young men, probably in their early 20s, and shine on them and said, follow me. Why would they want to follow such an unattractive, unimposing person? Anyway, they did. And a lot of things happened in his ministry. He cast out demons. He spoke profound things. He healed people. He shepherded them. He loved them. Thousands of people were gathered around him, even though he had no attracting power physically. He had to get into a boat to have a, a class by the lake because there were so many people. Thousands of people came to him, bringing paralytics, bringing deaf people, dumb people to be healed. So quite a report went out from him. 
And now it was time for the disciples to get a vision of who he was. So he asked them, Who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they knew. Some of these answers are not logical. John the Baptist? John the Baptist had been decapitated. His disciples took his body and buried it. But Herod thought John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. And some said, you're John the Baptist. Others said, this is Elijah. Or Jeremiah. Or one of the prophets. And so it is today. Everybody's got a concept. Everybody has an idea. If you grew up in the church life, you have your own concept of who Jesus is. And you may have a certain doctrinal understanding, but you may yet have to get the revelation of who this homely Jew from Nazareth really is. And it's astounding that the very God, Jehovah, when he became a man in the flesh, would be a carpenter, would be poor, would be unattractive, and would appear as if he had no education. Then he said to them, But you, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, representing us, being the forward one, the aggressive one, answered and said, You are the Christ. This is a tremendous declaration. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one of God. You are the one we have been waiting for. You, Jesus. You, Nazarene. You, Galilean. You, carpenter. You are the Christ. Then he went on to say, the son of the living God. Would you consider the force of this revelation? That a disfigured, Poor Nazarene was in fact the son of the living God, the embodiment of the triune God, God in the flesh, and the Christ. Christ refers to his office, to his commission. It's not his name. Son of the living God refers to his person. So Peter got a revelation. Now it took a while for Peter to have this revelation worked into him. In chapter 17, when the Lord is being transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration and Moses and Elijah appear, Peter suggests a tent for each of the three. Jesus is ranked with Moses and Elijah then God did not agree with Peter, so he spoke from the heavens directly, this is my son, I delight in him, hear him, hear him, this is my son. In chapter 16, Peter gets the revelation. In chapter 17, God himself speaks audibly from the heavens and says this is my son. Then later in chapter 17, 
They're in Capernaum. And those who collect the tax for the temple come to Peter and ask him, does your master pay the poll tax? And he wasn't from Minnesota, but he said, in effect, you betcha. You bet he does. Surely he pays the poll tax. He's a good Jew. He's an Orthodox Jew. Then he comes in the house and the Lord asks him a question. Simon, I have a question for you. When the kings of the earth collect tax, do they collect tax from their sons or just from the citizens? Does the king ask his son to pay tax? Or are the sons free? So this is a reminder, Simon. <clears throat> the son of the king doesn't have to pay the tax. Did you forget the revelation? Did you forget the voice from the heavens? Well, let me help you remember Go fishing. And you will get a fish eventually. And it will have a coin in it. And put it in for you and me. The point here is that it takes time. For the revelation concerning who Jesus is to really sink in. I am freshly impressed in the last two weeks that Jesus is Jehovah. The Jesus in Isaiah 53, this unattractive person growing up in poverty, there were at least seven kids in his family. We know from Mark 6, four brothers are named and the word sisters is used in the plural so that's a minimum of two sisters. Four brothers plus two sisters, including Jesus, is seven. And who knows how many sisters there really were. He was the oldest of a family of at least seven. Probably Joseph died early. Because there's no further mention of him, although the mother is there. He is a Nazarene. He is a Galilean. He is pitifully poor. He is unattractive. He's a man of sorrows. He's rejected and he despised. But he happens to be God in the flesh. Jehovah, the embodiment of the triune God. Now, isn't there lurking in your mind the expectation that if God would become a man, that man would be gorgeous, glamorous. I don't know what names to use. I'm so out of date with popular culture. I won't even use a name that probably you never heard of. <laughs> but you can picture just some gorgeous man, the man of your dreams. But Jesus would not be a candidate for future marriage for you sisters. How, how would you could be attracted to such an unattractive person? But when God became a man, he didn't become a handsome man. 
They didn't have a powerful physique. So now this man, Jesus, has laid aside his carpenter's tools and he is beginning his public ministry. And it's quite far advanced by chapter 16. And he's causing quite a stir and no one knows who he is. And he wants the disciples to know. And what he is asking, he is acting, asking in oneness with the Father. He knows the Father wants to bring in the revelation. So he asks them, who do men say? Who do they think I am? What are they saying? You, what do you say? Peter says, you, you, Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. Then Jesus answered, blessed are you. Would you like to be blessed this weekend? It's a blessing to receive this revelation. Blessed are you, Simon by Jonah, Barjona, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in the heavens. The Father decided to reveal His Son to Simon Peter. This is a great mercy. Eventually, whether you're coming into the church life through the announcing of the gospel through which you were saved, or if you are coming in the church life from within, eventually you yourself need to have a revelation of Christ, the Son of the living God. Remember those fellows in Acts 19, the sons of Sceva? Remember their case? Well, you may never have read Acts 19. Acts is a book in the New Testament, right? <laughs> I mean, we, we, sometimes we have to cast the net pretty wide. And they try to cast out demons like Paul did. And so I think there were quite a few of them. They went to a demon-possessed person and they applied their second-hand knowledge I rebuke you in the name of the Jesus Paul preaches. Well, the enemy can speak, especially if you're a phony. He will speak back. And he spoke back and said, Jesus, I know. And I'm acquainted with Paul. But who are you? And they got a real whooping. They got beat up pretty bad because when demons intensify, the rage in a person is really hard to subdue. You may have five men the size of our governor. You may still, providing it's Schwarzenegger, you know, forget whoever it was. Farewell. Anyway. It shows... You've got to have the real thing. You can't say, I preach 
the Jesus whom Ron Kangas ministers according to Brother Witness Lee's teaching. I now have a third-hand word to pass on to you. We need, in some way, gradually, to get the revelation directly from God so that it becomes our own. Now, concerning revelation, there are two things to point out. On God's side, it's a matter of His mercy. It's a matter of His mercy. And the Father wills to have mercy upon whom He will have mercy. And on the side of the Father, it's His mercy. It's His choice. But there is something on our side. And I'm going to be reading a lot of verses to you. And if you want to follow along, that's fine. If you don't want to follow along, my feelings won't be hurt. If you don't want to follow along with my verses, it's okay. But at least we, I wish you would at least note them. Now I'm in chapter 11. Jesus has been rejected by the cities, and he's rebuking them. Then verse 25 tells us, At that time, Jesus, again, Jesus answered and said, I extol you, Father, Lord of heaven and of earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for thus it has been well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one fully knows the Son except the Father. Neither does anyone fully know the Father except the Son and Him to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. God the Father is looking upon the entire human race all six billion plus of us. And a decision may be made, perhaps it's already been made, concerning us. And that is, will God hide the revelation or will He release the revelation? He says, you have hidden these things. Hidden them. From what category of people? The wise and intelligent. There you are, wise and intelligent, proud of your intelligence, although you had nothing to do with it, but you're proud of it anyway. Just as if you're beautiful, you're proud of your beauty. And if you're handsome, you're proud of your handsomeness. Even though you had nothing to do with it, you look in the mirror and you love what you see. <laughs> Vain people. And if we're not that beautiful or not that handsome, we can say at least we're smart. 
really smart. Got a 1560 on the SAT. And on and on it goes. The problem is, if we're wise and intelligent and kind of walk around admiring and trusting in our wisdom and intelligence, the Father may say, okay, I'll just leave you. I will hide this from you your whole life. Go ahead, ponder the secret of the universe. Try to figure it out. Did you read about that American magician that... Right, who... David so-and-so. And he was in this, what, this kind of box over the Thames for how long? Did you hear what he said when he came out after he lost 50-plus pounds? He said, oh, I really learned something there in the box. I learned the value of a sense of humor. And then he said, you should have a sense of humor because nothing makes any sense anyway. The whole thing is a joke. Nothing makes any sense. But when I was a young man, I had certain unrealistic expectations bordering on demands. I want to know what I'm doing here. I want to know the meaning of the universe. I want to know the purpose of life. Somebody has to know. And it has something to do with God and Christ. And it's revealed somehow in the Bible. But what a sad situation if the Father would say, I will hide it from the wise and intelligent and reveal it to infants. Now, we don't mean Karis Avery over there, literally an infant. We mean those that will humble themselves and empty themselves and recognize there are, as Hamlet told Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, that there are things of that far transcend your philosophy. The whole meaning, the secret of the universe, the mystery of God, the purpose of God, the will of God. Nobody knows. Theologians don't know. Not one instructor at the Graduate Theological Union on Holy Hill knows the meaning of the universe. But Mickey knows. (laughs) Because Mickey's an infant. I'm not demeaning him. But we realize there are things that we can never ponder. Maybe Stephen Hawking in his motorized wheelchair with that gigantic intellect and that debilitated body can go in his mind through the use of mathematical formulas to what kind of millisecond right after the Big Bang and imagine this incredible singularity when there was nothing, and suddenly nothing became everything and will now explain the whole universe without God. Sorry, Stephen Hawking. The revelation 
is being hidden from you. Wise and intelligent. It's revealed to infants. So, this is a mercy. To present yourself to the Lord, to say, Lord, unless you show me this revelation, I have no way to break through. Now, for the remaining time, which is about half an hour, just to let you know. And if you are overcome with sleep because of the climb up and the day, I say to you, sleep on. (laughs) And when you wake up, try to figure out what's going on. (laughs) But what could be a better place to sleep than an atmosphere full of the all-inclusive Christ? So, I've told this story more than once. I've learned to have mercy on those who sleep while I speak. Because once while teaching high school, I fell asleep while I was teaching. (laughs) It actually happened. I, I kid you not. Maybe I shouldn't have been sitting at a desk and I might have fallen asleep standing up. But David was a newborn, just a few weeks old. And so we had antiphonal crying through the night. Becky's turn. Silence. David's turn. Silence. Of course, mother has to get up and feed David. Too bad for mother. Dad has to get up and go to work. Too bad for dad. So after a few nights of this, and I am sitting there, and I am teaching exceedingly slow students in a bungalow of San Fernando High School, and I'm speaking so slowly that in between syllables, I nodded off. I don't think it was long, but I, but I learned a lesson in humility. If I can fall asleep on me, certainly anyone else can fall asleep on me. But although I meant nothing by guile, perhaps now we're all wide awake. Whether that's the case or not, this is a Friday night. Sometimes uh, it's a little slow. Now, by referring to about 12 other passages from the Gospel of Matthew, I would like to try to give you some impression of what kind of person Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is. Remember, we're talking about God in the flesh. This is the flesh of an unattractive man. We have seen from Matthew 16 that according to divine revelation, he is the Christ. When people run for office in the U.S., this kind of person doesn't do well in primaries. Or you've got to have certain kind of looks, you've got to have charm, but ugly people don't do well. But according to God's arrangement, He was the Messiah. He is the Christ. 
and he is the Son of God. But the revelation concerning him is not limited to this, that he is Christ and that he is the Son of God. The revelation is going in the direction that he is all-inclusive. That means he is the reality of God and of man and of every positive thing in the universe. This Jew, this Nazarene, is the embodiment of the fullness of the Godhead. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily and as the Christ, he is all-inclusive. Everything that God is, everything that a man, a human is, and the reality of every positive thing. He's the real sun. He's the real star. He's the real light. He's the real food. He's the real pasture. Sometimes I enjoy him as my waterfall. I like to stand under him. And let him inundate me with himself. He's the reality of every positive thing. Now we go to chapter 1. And we're moving fairly quickly here. In chapter 1, his name is given. In verse 21. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus, the Savior, the salvation of Jehovah, he is the I Am. He is Jehovah God come in the flesh. In one message in Isaiah, we emphasize the fact that Jesus is Jehovah. Now we would emphasize the fact Jesus is Jehovah. But according to Isaiah 53, no one would believe this report. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of Jehovah been revealed? They wouldn't believe it because the arm of Jehovah, Jehovah in his saving power, was revealed in a man of sorrows who was unattractive and who was poor. And who would believe it? That this man is Jehovah in the flesh. But that is who Jesus is. Then in verse 23, they called his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Those who followed him had a certain realization that when I'm with this Nazarene, I have the sense God is with me. That's quite a realization. God is with me. God wants to be with you. He knows you're scared of him. He knows you're scared of him. Especially when you've had a failure, when you've sinned, you're scared to come to him. You think he's out to get you. You didn't think if you come to him that he'll really nuke you. He'll really do you in. He knows. So he came to us 
in a very unassuming way. And who would be threatened by this kind of unimposing person? And then you realize when you're with him, God is with you. Now, we go to chapter 21, verse 5. We see that Jesus is Christ. He's the son of the living God. He is Jesus and he is Emmanuel. Now he is revealed as the king. I wonder if we'll ever have an inauguration of the president. He comes riding on a donkey. When Hillary Clinton is elected president, do you think she'll ride in on a donkey? Surely it will be in a palanquin. Verse 5, quoting Zechariah. In case my when is too frightening, I'll say if, okay? I'll say if. But I thought I would put it in the most stark terms. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, meek and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, a foal of a beast of burden. He is the king. Herod mocked him by writing, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. What mockery. He's the king. Now, many of you who are from Berkeley, maybe not everyone, is studying physics, double E, or biochemistry. Maybe some are wandering about in the humanities department where the feminists are lurking. And anything that smacks of patriarchy, they can't take. And kingship may be an outmoded notion to them. King, God is a male, he's a king. You're excluding us when you use masculine pronouns. You're excluding us. You use patriarchal language. We're excluded. Our feelings are hurt. We want you to neuter God for us so we feel comfortable. Well, let the wimpy theologians on Holy Hill neuter the divine revelation. I will not. Jesus is king. He's a king. That's the fact. Take it or leave it. Like it or not. He is the king. Talk about the divine right of kings. He has it and he is it. He is the king. Herod knew it. So when Herod realized a king has been born... You've got to kill him. Have you seen how evil politics is? I don't care where your allegiances lie. The whole system is evil and bestial and dark and cruel and inhuman. So Herod finds out a king has been born in Bethlehem. He's threatened. So what order does he issue? Kill all the babies to and under. So be sure we get him. That's the kind of world this king was born into. 
then when he's manifested, he comes on, in a very humble way on a donkey, on the, a foal, coming in meekness. Now we go to chapter 4. And we see that this Jesus is something else, beginning at verse 12. Now when he heard that John was delivered up, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came to Capernaum, which is beside the sea in the borders of Zebulun and Naphtali, in order that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people sitting in darkness have seen a great light. And to those sitting in the region and shadow of death, to them light has risen. If Jesus were to come to Telegraph Avenue, actually today, Jesus walked up and down Telegraph Avenue. How do you know? Because I walked up and down Telegraph Avenue with several brothers and sisters. And if we are one spirit with the Lord, this is Jesus living again. Really so? So the Lord would go into a region of darkness and death where the people... They're just sitting in darkness, sitting in the region and shadow of death. And before he said anything, he shined on them. Now, when Jesus shines on you, your life is changed forever. When the great light comes, how are you going to argue with light? Okay, you're smart, you're logical. You, you are very good at reasoning. You want evidence. You want data. The great light shines on you. Saul of Tarsus was probably a genius. How did he do with light? What happened to him? The light shattered him. But in Matthew 4, the light attracted them. Can you imagine what they were saying about Peter? Why did he leave his wife? He was married. He leaves his job. And he joins with some other young fellows following this unattractive Nazarene here and there. Why would he do that? Because this light shined on him. God shines into you. This is very precious. Do you know Christ as light? Will you let him shine into you? You're sitting there in death, in darkness. He comes and shines. Then he says, repent for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. And then he says to some, come after me. What would you do if after you got your be something or other, and you've got a golden future ahead of you, the great light comes and shines on you and says, follow me south. <laughs> follow me to Anaheim. 
Follow me to FTTA. Do not fear. Do not be afraid to talk to me. I am not a recruiter for the FTTA. The great light doesn't need me to recruit anybody. Okay? So don't worry. I'm not going to try to get you in a corner, coerce you to take a number, to vow to come to the full-time training. I just want to see what happens when the light shines on you. And he says, follow me. Your life is over from that point. You can never be content in the darkness again. He is the light. Now we go to chapter 9. A lot of things in chapter 9. And all of them are precious. Where should we begin? Let's begin with verse 9. Okay, Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man sitting at the tax office. Is he working for H&R Block? Is he working for the IRS? Is he with some prestigious accounting firm? Called Matthew. And he said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. Okay, Matthew was a tax collector. What kind of buddies did tax collectors have? Well, you could say none among reputable people. But obviously, he had enough that wanted to come to his house in verse 10. And as he, Jesus, was reclining at table in the house, and we know from other portions, this is Matthew's house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and reclined together with Jesus and his disciples. Now, how would you feel if you came to my rented home in Anaheim and you came in and you saw about 20 people there? Uh, one is with a crime syndicate. Some are in the nightclub scene. Some are unscrupulous business persons. Some are utterly immoral women. Some are playboys. And they're all there enjoying my wife's lasagna. <laughs> wouldn't you be possibly revolted? Or wouldn't you wonder? Would you want to be there? Look! Is Ron Kang is going to teach them the high peak of the divine revelation? I thought we wanted good material. I have news for you. There's no good material anywhere on the whole earth. There's only us sinners. That's all there is. But of course the Pharisees couldn't bear this. They said to his disciples, see they didn't have the guts to speak directly to him. You ever had somebody do this? They say something in your hearing about you, but they won't say it to you. They'll say to someone else. I was on an airplane and trying to fit my bag up there, and then this is why I always feel nervous with carry-ons. I'm going to try to fit it in there, and these people are sitting in the next row, and she's saying, why don't some people, isn't it pitiful how they carry on their stuff. Why don't they check it in? 
And I had to resist. Some people who? <laughs> hey, what do you mean? But anyway, whether I was just being a nice guy or I was in the spirit, I didn't say anything. But they went to the disciples. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And I don't know if they knew how to answer. Maybe they're shocked themselves. But Jesus heard it. And he said, those who are strong have no need of a physician, but those who are ill. I'm a physician. Do you know Jesus as a physician? I love him as the physician. I used to think I was strong. Now I know I'm ill. But the strong, they don't need a physician. The Pharisees, the strong, the healthy, the balanced, people that are incredibly balanced, they have no extremes, they have no problems, they have no psychological weaknesses, they don't have any mood swings, they don't have any low times, they don't have any derangement in their thinking, they don't have any defects. The Lord said, I didn't come for those, I came for the ill. And I didn't come as a judge. I came as a physician. Christ is a physician. I really love him. That's why I love that hymn. Come and rejoice with me. I, once so sick at heart, have met with one who knows my case and knows the healing art. I assure you, I am a case. And because I know I'm a case, I know something else. I know you're a case. Amen. Right? But the knowing is not some kind of cold, threatening discernment. It's the understanding of a physician who understands the way you think, the way you feel, what's in your heart. He knows your secrets. He knows your fantasies. He knows your daydreams. He knows what memories are haunting you. He knows your fears. He knows why you're anxious. He knows what's driving you. He understands you, and he is here to heal you if you will be willing to admit to him that you need him. You need him. Come and rejoice with me, for I have found a friend who knows my heart's most secret depths, yet loves me without end. When I was 19, you might have heard me testify this, I made a decision, a sad decision, for a 19-year-old young man to make. But I made a twofold decision. One is... No one will, I will not allow anyone to know me. Because if you know me, you'll never love me. You might love a concept, you might love an image, but if you knew me, you wouldn't love me. And then the second decision was, there isn't any love anyway. 
so I'll settle for respect. I'll do well in this, and I'll speak well, and I'll get top grades, and I'll manifest a certain level of intelligence, and you'll have to respect it, and I'll settle for that. Then I met Susan Harris, and everything began to change because she happens to know people in the depths, and gradually I began to lose my fear of being known, which was also the fear of not being loved. And I realized, this is one of the first hymns that impressed me when I came into the Lord's recovery, was come and rejoice with me, for I have found a friend who knows my heart's most secret depths. Now here's the turn. And loves me without end. Wait a minute. Loves me, knows me, and loves me. This does not, this is not my life experience. To really know what's there, your love will evaporate. Do you know why God loves you? It's because God is love. It's not because you're lovable. It's because God is love. I realized when I loved Susan Harris before she became Susan Harris Kangas, I thought naively, oh, when I say I love, that is saying something about the object of love. It's not. It's saying something about the subject of love. I love her. That's saying something about me. I find security in this. God doesn't look around to find something in you potentially lovable so he has a ground to love you. He loves you because he's love. And he decides to release it to you. And then you find some security. You know this love isn't going anywhere. He loved you when you were in sin. He loved you when you were an enemy. He loved you when you were a rebel. He still loves you when you fail. He still loves you when you fall. You realize the love must not depend on me. I don't have to be afraid of losing it. I don't have to be afraid of the torment. Do this or I won't love you anymore. I consider this liberation. The physician has a heart of love and mercy and compassion. And this is combined with something else. In verse 15... It talks about the bridegroom. Do you know whom the Lord is going to marry? According to the Gospel of Matthew, a lot of immoral, leprous, sick people that have been healed and regenerated and made new, and they will become his wife. There's no one else on the earth. There's no one worthy to marry the Lord Jesus. 
Before he can be the bridegroom, he has to be the physician. And he knows everybody is ill. But the religious ones won't admit they're ill. Something about the tax collectors and the sinners and the harlots and all these others. There's no pretense anymore. They might have cared at a certain point, but now there's no more pretense. And when they meet, they recognize they may be fallen, but they still have a sense of when something is real and when it's not. And they may test the love. I've worked with emotionally disturbed children, and some of them were threatened by love. They never had love in their life. They would test it. They would challenge it by being utterly repulsive on purpose. And the challenge was this. Eventually, you'll, you'll stop loving. I'll be so ugly. I'll be so repulsive. And some of them, it really, really was a challenge. But then they find out, you can't shake it. You can't stop it. I will to love you. Call me a fool. But I am love. And I will to love you, not because there's anything in you that would elicit love from me. But then the Lord, we know from 1 John, we love because he first loved us. He infuses this love into us. And eventually it produces love in us. And we love him back. That's the divine romance. So after he's the physician, he's the bridegroom. What a lovely person. And we're the bride. We need a revelation of every point of Jesus, of Christ, the King, the light, the physician, the bridegroom. I think what I should do is not to try to give the whole message tonight. I think the Spirit will not force that much. I'll just mention two other points. I think this is sufficient. And we'll just start fresh tomorrow and we'll just follow the Lamb wherever He goes and follow the Spirit wherever He flows. That's the best. I believe by lunchtime, Lord's Day, we'll somehow finish it. If we don't finish it, then praise the Lord anyway. As long as he, the Lord can speak to us what's on His heart, that's good enough. And I believe there's something in His heart for someone's in this room, and he wants them to know that he is your physician. He knows you thoroughly, and he does not withdraw from you. He came inside of you to live in you, knowing what kind of person you are, knowing what kind of situation you're in, knowing what kind of soul you have, knowing what kind of resistance you will present. And he is confident that he will get you in the end, and you will be happy for it. Isn't he wonderful? Amen. He wasn't humbled only once when he was born in Bethlehem. He was humbled in August 1955 when he came into me at the age, my age of 15 years, 11 months. 
I went to the New Wilmington Missionary Conference, not because I was seeking God, I was seeking Jane. I was seeking Jane. Jane was, I was a Lutheran until I met Jane. Jane was a Presbyterian, therefore I become a Presbyterian. There's more than one reason to change your theology. You know, a cute girlfriend may have something to do with it. This shows the depth of my Lutheranism. Also the depth of my Calvinism. Oh, as I heard about this conference, Jane is going to go and my friend Bill is going to go and other young people in this Presbyterian church is going to go. I'm going. I'm going. My sole purpose in going was to have a week away from parents with Jane in New Wilmington, Pennsylvania, wherever that is, and the campus of Westminster College, wherever that is, at the New Wilmington Missionary Conference, whatever that is, I don't care where, I don't care what, I only have eyes for Jane. Okay, I made no pretense to myself. I am going for Jane. If I made this clear to you all, I was not a God seeker. I was not going because I was hungry for truth. I wanted the Bible expounded to me. I didn't care about God, the Bible, the truth. I cared about Jane. <laughs> so we got there on a Saturday. And we ate in the dining hall of Westminster College. And college students were waiting tables. Well, okay, good for them. They're waiting tables. They're probably getting paid for it. Then... On the Lord's Day night, we're walking into town and I'm walking with Bill, my friend, and I see Jane. And Jane is walking hand in hand with a college student waiter. She didn't even tell me, cold, cruel. Oh, you girls can be so hard on a guy. To tell you the truth, if I had to do over and didn't date anyone till I met Susan, I'd do it that way. But I, but I couldn't do it that way. So there she is. I, I, I had to perceive and infer from the available data that Jane dropped me. And there would be no week with Jane. So what am I going to do? Now I'm stuck at Westminster College in New Wilmington, Pennsylvania at the New Wilmington Missionary Conference, whatever this is. We're meetings early in the morning, meetings in the middle of the morning, meetings late in the morning, meetings in the afternoon, meetings at night, meeting, 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 preaching, preaching, preaching. Then one preacher is preaching in the morning. And I don't mean this in a cynical way. I think it's time... It's okay to tell the story. I don't mean this in a cynical way, but I believe I'll meet him. I would like to tell him, Reverend Dr. So-and-so, you were a preacher at the New Wilmington Missionary Conference in 1955, and I heard you morning after morning. I would like to tell you, Reverend Dr. So-and-so, that I got saved at that New Wilmington Missionary Conference, and I got saved in spite of you. You made God so unattractive that all you knew to do was to instill feelings of guilt and manipulate guilt feelings. If that's all I heard, 
I never would have opened to the Lord. But thank the Lord that I went to another meeting after your meeting and there was another Reverend Dr. So-and-so who magnified Christ. And he gave a message that I'll never forget the title of. It was entitled, Nobodies Are Somebodies in Christ. And it wasn't an atmosphere where they give, you know, an invitation and all of this. But there was a testimony meeting the last night. I'm in this testimony meeting and I decide I'm not testifying anything. But my friend Bill gets up. I thought, well, he must be impressed with something. And after he spoke, I just felt to get up. And when I got up and began to say something, in that instant, I got saved. The Lord came into me, but I didn't know he came into me. Till about a month later, I wish I had someone to teach me. I didn't have anyone to teach me. But I made a discovery. I was now 16 years and one month old. I made a discovery. There is another person living in me. Another person. And then he began to speak to me. He began to call me every night for a month in October 1955 as I tried to pray and as I knelt down to pray, to try to pray. Same thing, one sentence. Ron, I want you to be a minister. That's all. Ron, first I realized this is the Lord. This is like in Samuel. This is the Lord in me. Ron, he knows my name is Ron. (laughs) Ron, I, and and the one who called me, he's listening to me tell this. I think he likes it. I think he likes it because it's true. I want you to be a minister. Once I realized what was happening, I knew what to do. And that was, of course, to say no. Because I had a concept, ministers of clergymen, ministers of seminary graduate. So I went until the Lord saved me from that and renewed my mind in the recovery. So then I said, I said, I won't. No, 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 I'm sorry, sorry. I I made a mistake. I said, I can't. I can't do it. That means I'm not able to do it. And so he would say, Ron, I want you to be a minister. I would say, I can't. Very terse exchange but something happened on a Sunday morning I had to preach for the first time in my life and something happened that's all I can say something really happened everybody knew it I knew it the Lord was speaking so I knew I could not say I can't so at that point I said I won't (laughs) and the Lord is merciful the Lord is patient but the Lord is also very persistent. And he would say, Ron, I want you to be a minister. Ron, next night, Ron, I want you to be a minister. By the end of October, okay, I will be a minister. Then I finished high school, went to college, went to seminary, thinking I'd be a minister, graduated from seminary. The Lord intervenes, turns everything upside down, Causes me to reconsider everything. Brings me to the church life. And now I am Ron, your brother. But I'd like to tell you something. 
I am Ron, your brother, but I am a minister. So are you. Now I consider what condescension, what humility. I'm a Jane seeker, not a God seeker. He would come into me even in an atmosphere where there's no clear gospel invitation. Even I didn't intend to speak. Why did I get up? What motivated me to get up? What caused me to say that I cannot be approved by God by any good works that I can do? That it's only by grace received through faith. That was the doctrine they taught me. That's what I confessed. And I didn't even know to call on the Lord. But when I opened up with a sincere heart, he came in. Now, isn't he wonderful? And he came into you as the physician. He knows everything is going on. He's not intimidated. He's not bothered. He's not afraid. He's not ashamed. You see, the Lord is very good at being God. He's very good at it. I say this affectionately and respectfully. If we would open to him, he knows exactly what to do. Maybe that sometimes scares us, so we don't open that much. But if we get some impression, he is Christ. He's the son of the living God. He is Jesus. He is Emmanuel. He is the great light. He is a humble king. He is the physician. He is the bridegroom. How can I not open to him? How can I not love him? My only regret is that when I was a teenager, when I was in college, I had no one who could tell me concerning the all-inclusive Christ. No one to tell me that he was the spirit to live in me. No one to tell me that I have a spirit. But thank the Lord, you don't have to be Christ-deprived. In your youth, while you're students, you can hear the good news of the all-inclusive Christ. Amen. He's a wonderful person. He is God. He is man. He is the reality of every positive thing in the universe. And we've only covered a handful of points. Probably we'll cover a few more tomorrow and then go on to the church, the cross, and the kingdom. But don't you love him? Amen. Praise him. Amen. Maybe we could either have some prayer or just some brief sharing before we go to our respective cabins. Just follow the Spirit. If you feel to pray, pray. If you feel to speak, speak. Okay? But respond to this wonderful one.